Hello and welcome to our first HiBiz podcast for 2020. My name is David Hasty, Senior Associate in Cause's Projects Practice Group, and I'm joined by Cause Consultant Wayne Josick and Cause Senior Associate Jay Nandekummerin. At the back of 2019, one of the most anticipated construction law decisions for some time was handed down by the High Court. Mann and Patterson was without doubt one of the most important decisions in recent years, given its guidance on the availability of quantum merit as a restitutionary remedy in construction disputes. The question everyone wants to know is whether the High Court has killed off quantum merit or whether there remains some scope for electing QM for relief in restitution for unjust enrichment. Yes, the door has likely been slammed shut on QM in a domestic building context, but in a commercial construction contract context, Mann and Patterson shouldn't be considered QM's swan song just yet. Wayne, Jay, thanks very much for joining me. Wayne, I might throw to you to begin. Sure. So today we're going to talk about a case called Mann and Patterson. So it's a recent High Court case. It was much anticipated and what we have in the end is three very complex judgments. So what I'm going to do before I start to talk about the actual topic, which is quantum merit, is step back about 10 paces and start with some basics about contract law. I'm going to do that because, as you can probably tell, those basic words, quantum merit, aren't even English, and it's probably useful for us to get ourselves oriented first. So the first thing I start off with is if we're dealing with contract, people can do the wrong thing, of course, and normally the way the law responds is just to ask that wrongdoer to pay money. So you have to pay damages. Now, there are other remedies. It might be you can get an injunction or an order for specific performance or rescission, but generally we're talking about damages. Now, in other situations, it might be that you have a contract, but you haven't specified price for work that's to be done or it might be that you don't have an enforceable contract. And in those situations, the law allows through different routes for the party who's done some work to be able to claim for a reasonable sum. That's what quantum merit means. So the topic we're dealing with today really combines those two ideas of that reasonable sum and the appropriate remedy for somebody who does something wrong under a contract. This is the more controversial idea. So it's an important issue, a vitally important issue in construction because it arises typically in this way. What you have is a contractor who has done some or maybe a large part of the work that they're required to do under the contract. The principal then perhaps thinks that the work hasn't been done satisfactorily, attempts to bring the contract to an end, but they don't have legal reasons for doing that contractor then accepts that repudiation. So where we are now is the contract is over in, in the sense that the parties don't have to perform future obligations, builder doesn't have to come back on site. But the question is, what happens to money for the work that the contract has already done? So I know it's a very long-winded introduction, but the way the law used to work, a bit controversially, because of cases like Kane and Sopov and Renard, was that the contractor had a choice here. The contractor could choose damages for breach of contract or could alternatively elect to be paid on a quantum merit, to be paid a reasonable sum at market rates for the work that they'd done. Now, you can see those figures could be different. And if you're the contractor, you're going to have a you know, good assessment of which one is more favourable. And often where the contractor had done a lot of work, perhaps where they had underpriced it a bit, the quantum merit assessment might have been uh, favourable. 
you can see, though, that's a bit of an odd situation in the common law because normally we're talking about damages for breach of contract. So that's really the central issue in Manor Patterson. Can a contractor still claim that quantum merit, that reasonable sum for work they've done where the principal has brought the contract to an end wrongfully? Wayne, this is Jay here. I'm just wondering, why would a contractor bother claiming this alternative remedy? What are the advantages for it? Look, I think I can answer that in a single word, and that's money. Because you can see if you, uh, if you put in a bid, a tender, you're pricing on the basis of perhaps limited information. It might be that you, you, know, you propose to do work for, let's say, $100,000. Turns out, though, that the work, if you were to complete all of it, it would actually cost you $150,000. You really underpriced it. But along the way, you end up with this sort of difficulty. Perhaps you've done $120,000 worth of work. Now, on the contractual basis, you wouldn't be paid $120,000, but maybe you'd be paid $120,000 on a quantum merit assessment. So then we say, well, one of the questions I suppose we're going to deal with later, I'm sure we're going to deal with later, is whether that contract sum of $100,000 might be a cap on what the contractor could get in any situation. Absolutely. Well, Jay, I might throw back to you. How about you just run us very quickly and succinctly through the, um, through the facts of uh, the Mann and Patterson High Court decision? Thanks, Dave. I will keep it short. Simple case. It was about the construction of two townhouses in Blackburn in Victoria. It was a fixed-price contract for $971,000. It was a contract under the Domestic Building Contracts Act, and it was, as is common for contracts of this nature, split into five separate stages. And there was a fixed cost for each of the five stages. The sort of things that would be very familiar to builders and owners, things like base stage, frame stage, lock-up stage. During the course of the project, towards the end, in fact, when most but not all of the work had been done, the owner requested a number of variations which the builder carried out. The formal process in the contract and under the Act weren't followed. But then when we got towards the end of the project, the builders submitted a claim for all of those variations. The owners became unhappy. There was the usual angry exchange of correspondence between the party's lawyers, and the owners ended up alleging that the builder had repudiated the contract by claiming these variations. The builder's solicitors responded and said by claiming that the builder had repudiated the contract, the owner had in fact repudiated the contract and the builder accepted that repudiation and brought the contract to, the, to an end by terminating it. Jay, thanks very much for that um, summary of facts. Jay, Wayne, I guess the question that everyone wants to know coming out of the, um, the, the High Court's decision in Mann and Patterson is, is uh, quantum merit still alive as a remedy? Very, very broad sweeping question, that one. But um, Wayne, your thoughts? <laughs> I've got my own opinions. Uh, look, before, uh, before I, I answer the question properly, I'm going to say it's a good idea to take a deep breath. Uh, so a lot of people, I think, have said in response to this case that it, quantum merit claims in this context are dead and I actually think the truth is more complex than that so what I might do if you don't mind is just step through situations where we know quantum merit claims are not going to be available and then where they might be available so I think we can say fairly confidently that where the contractor has an accrued 
right to payment. For example, because they've done all of the work for a specified stage where there's a dollar amount attached to that, then they will be entitled to payment in accordance with the contract. It's a debt claim. They won't be able to claim in quantum merit even if the owner hasn't paid them for that particular piece of work. So that's fairly clear from all of the judgments in the High Court. Now, I just want to say that is different from the position in some of those older cases that people might have come across, like Renard, like Kane Sopov, like uh, Salian Plotter, uh, Yetzi, uh, plenty of cases. So, so the, the opportunity to elect is, is gone. That's dead in this context? Well, it, it is dead in this particular circumstance where the contractor has an accrued right to payment. But the really tricky thing is that it might be that contractors will still have a, a more limited right to claim on a quantum merit basis if they choose to do that, where there's no accrued contractual right. And this can happen in the situation where work, you know, perhaps for some stage of construction, has been partly performed but not fully performed. So they haven't actually done all of the work that would trigger the entitlement to be paid enforceable in debt. Uh, and so that's a situation that's really quite interesting. So this is fairly clear on these facts because of the domestic building context, because the relevant act requires the contract to set out particular dollar amounts for particular stages of work. So I'm just going to run through quickly the, uh, the, the judgments here. And I know this is a little bit painful, but it's very important for us to see the detail of the case. So the first thing I'd say is that you know, what I would loosely call the minority, the Chief Justice and others, say there's just no right to the quantum merit claim here. So three out of the seven judges say no quantum merit in this situation at all. But what we have for different reasons is the remaining four holding that a quantum merit might be available. So what I'm going to call the majority, judgment of three, say that in this situation where there's no accrued contractual right to payment, there's what they call a failure of consideration. And that's language that people might know from money hadn't received claims. It's, a, it's an idea that's well entrenched in scholarship in unjust enrichment. But they say that this sort of failure of consideration founds a quantum merit claim. So it's still available for that work that's been partly performed. So I know that was quite a, a, a detailed comment, but I think it just shows that there's um, a real division here because the remaining judge who thought that quantum merit was available in these limited circumstances, Justice Gagler, just didn't buy into that language of a failure of consideration. Instead said, on the basis of some quite old, um, immemorable decisions, that it's really another sort of debt claim, um, albeit for that sort of reasonable sum. So that was a bit long-winded, so let me try to give a quick summary. So where we are today after Man and Patterson is that where you have an accrued right to payment as a contractor, you can't elect quantum merit. You're stuck with the contractual portion of the price. But for different reasons, highly contested reasons, Four out of the seven judgments leave us in the situation that where you don't have an accrued right to payment, uh, you might be able to elect between damages of breach of contract uh, or a quantum merit assessment. So this might sound like an incredibly abstruse discussion, 
but I'm just going to raise a question which I think is very hard and which I don't, I don't think anyone really has a firm answer to, and that is, well, what happens if you're dealing with an ordinary commercial construction contract where you have headline contract sum and you have provisional monthly payment, but that payment is on account only? You know, that's consistent with security payment legislation. Um, that's a very different situation from the fixed price, fixed stage approach in domestic building. And so there's a live question about whether quantum merit claims might be available more broadly in that situation. And the High Court judgments, because of that split, just don't really answer that question, which is, I think, the most pressing one. That's great, Wayne. Thank you. That's very detailed. Um, I guess one of the big issues also coming out of um, out of the decision was the question of whether the co- the contract price can act as a cap on QM, and and there was significant discussion around um, contract price acting as um, reflecting uh, the relevant risk allocation between the parties. Jay, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I guess the first thing to say is the minority judgment of the Chief Justice and co didn't need to deal with this question because their conclusion was that irrespective of whether there is an accrued right to payment or not, a builder in these circumstances is only entitled to claim damages for the repudiation. They didn't turn their minds to this question. The other four judges split between the judgments of Justice Edelman and Co. and Justice Gagler came to different, slightly different conclusions. Justice Gagler said that notwithstanding that there was this availability of an alternative remedy of restitutionary quantum merit, any agreed contract price or prices would act as an absolute cap on the amount that a builder would be able to recover. Now, Justice Edelman and co. weren't quite so definitive. Their conclusion was that the contract price or prices would ordinarily act as a cap on the amount that a builder would be able to recover, but this wouldn't always be the case. They left open the door for claims that would exceed any amounts agreed between parties. Yeah, and look, if I could just leap in, I think this is one of those situations where it's... Uh, I suppose moderately easy for the High Court judges to sit there and to make a, a broad statement of principle. Like in the case of the majority judgment, Edelman and Co. to say there's a prima facie position that uh, the contract sum operates as a cap or the relevant part of it does. But as soon as you start to apply it, this becomes really, really hard. So uh, what is the contract sum? Like in a construction context, if we think about this, there are plenty of ways that the contract sum that's listed there in the contract might vary. It might be there are variations. It might be that you encounter some latent conditions. It might be that there are you know, prime cost items, that there are uh, provisional sums, that there's a change in law, whatever else. It's actually very difficult to work out you know, what that cap might be. There's plenty of room for argument, number one, about what the law is, but then number two, I think more importantly, about how that, you know, that, that contract sum, if it's a cap at all, is actually going to be determined. So I think this is a situation where there's much more in this case uh, than a quick reading suggests. Absolutely. And on the facts, um, especially as it's been touched on by Wayne, yourself and Jay, uh, given the domestic building context of this dispute, these principles um, as put forward by the High Court, they make sense in the domestic building context, not necessarily 
in a mega project context. Uh, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, and I think, uh, I, I suppose I told, you know, this raises a really important or general question, which is, well, what do you do on those big projects in response to this case? You're not just understanding or trying to understand ideas of a failure of consideration, all those things. What do you do in response? And it, look, the first thing I would say is this is an area that's very important for people working at the front end, working you know, tenders, negotiation, those things. And the first thing I would say is it's pretty clear now from all the judgments that if you want very plainly in the contract to exclude a quantum merit claim, you can do it. If you want to do more elaborate things, if you want to set up something like a termination for convenience regime, have everything deemed to be a termination for convenience, if it happens to be repudiation, say, you can do that. You can couple that with a termination payment schedule. All of those things will be effective. I've spoken about that some length, and it sounds like it's a really complex thing to do, but if we just step back for a second, this was, I suspect, a high-stakes project for the people who were involved, but the case went from VCAT to the Supreme Court to the Court of Appeal to the High Court, back to VCAT, and in a sense, I think all of that could have been dealt with by well-informed very careful front-end drafting. So I'd say that's, that's one implication for major projects, that the time you invest um, early on really can avoid this sort of problem if you're, if you're fully aware of it. Um, I suppose that's you know, a front-end observation, but then you have the question about you know, what do you do in argument? You know, how do you plead these things? You know, what's going on there? Uh, I don't know, Jay, whether you have any, uh, any insights into what the case tells us about <laughs> what we do in future in, in legal argument. It is one of the difficulties, I think, of passing between the judgments of the purported majority of Edelman and Co. and then Gagler. The fact that their conclusions as to why it is that a builder is entitled to restitutionary quantum merit means that I think it is complex trying to figure out how you would plead a cause of action whether that cause of action is based on some free-floating idea of unjust enrichment and there being vitiating factors in this case, as Justice Edelman and co would put it, it's the failure of consideration or the failure of basis predicated upon a contract being terminated before all work is complete and before all payment has been made. Yeah, look, I, I, I think I'm going to have to say, Jay, it's, I just find it very difficult to know how to respond um, to this case uh, because there is this split in the judgment, exactly as you said. And I think to me what that points to is the idea that this is not the case that killed quantum error, but in fact is the case that's likely to trigger lots of... Um, of further arguments about things like the precise formulation of the claim, about the limits of the claim, about what amounts to uh, a failure of a distinct and severable part, about the effect of the cap, all of those things. So I think it's really a complication rather than the solution to all these problems. Uh, look, we've been talking about quite a lot here, so maybe what I might try to do very ambitiously is try to draw this all together in, in a sentence or two, uh, with perhaps with your help, Jay. It seems to me Mann and Patterson is one of the most important private law cases and it's certainly the most important high court construction case in a long time because it goes to the heart of contract law. What do you get when you're wronged under a contract? I think now the 
short answer to that is you'll normally be entitled to damages. And it's really on Manor Patterson, only in particularly limited circumstances that you might be able to make a quantum merit claim. That's where you haven't actually accrued a contractual right to payment. Now, the one big caveat to that, as I mentioned earlier, is it's not clear how this decision works when you're dealing with a standard commercial construction contract that has a single contract sum and then monthly payments on account only, you know, expressly not uh, not payable in debt, expressly not payable, um, you know, not indicating rather that the work's been performed satisfactorily. So plenty of complications, uh, but in short, the availability of quantum merit has been narrowed, but it still remains. Thanks very much for that, Wayne and Jay. So in summary, where have we landed? As a contractor, it is now clear that where you have an accrued right to payment under the contract, you will not be able to elect QM as a remedy, as was previously arguable. Here, I guess the SOP-OFF line of authority has been put to bed. However, while far from settled, where an accrued right to payment does not exist, you may be able to elect for damages for breach of contract or a QM assessment. But how this works in a commercial building context, I guess only time will tell. Until next time... Thanks very much for listening. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.